Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. Welcome to Magnificat Proclaims, presented to you by Magnificat, a ministry to Catholic women. Whether this is your first time you've listened to our program, or you have been with us many times before, we are delighted that you have joined us. I'm Donna Ross, your host for today's program. We pray that today may be a special day in your life as you experience through the personal testimony of our featured guest, the presence of Jesus Christ among us. Magnificat taken from Luke chapter 1, is the great hymn of praise that Mary prayed while visiting her cousin Elizabeth. Both women had been deeply touched by God. Elizabeth was bearing a long-awaited child. Mary was carrying within her womb the very Son of God. They came together to help one another, to speak of God's action in their lives, to sing, to pray, to share a common faith, and to be strengthened for all that was to come. Like Mary and Elizabeth, We want to come together in God's presence and proclaim the Almighty has done great things for me and you, and holy is his name. This Magnificat Proclaims series features Catholic Christian women who have shared their testimony at one of the many Magnificat chapters hosting quarterly meals around the world. Typically, this three-hour gathering provides opportunity for a shared meal, fellowship, communal praise and worship, personal testimony of one woman's expression of God's action in her life and intercessory prayer for the needs of the church and of those present. We trust that these testimonies will help each of us come to better understand that we are truly children of God, made in His image and likeness. It's my privilege today to introduce to you Sandy Arso. 
Sandy was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, where she spent her early years. She attended church services every Sunday till she was 15 years old, and the cares of the world lured her away from what she then considered the boredom of church services. At the age of 20, she was a self-proclaimed agnostic and married and moved to Dallas. The next 10 years, she lived her life according to the world's definition— She had a great job that she enjoyed and an income that allowed her to satisfy every whim. Sandy writes that she and her husband spent their spare time traveling, going to concerts and movies in the theater, dining at fine restaurants, partying with friends, and acquiring material possessions. At the age of 30, after reading an interview with Frances Schaeffer, she began a pursuit of a new direction in her life. She was searching for answers and God met her at a talk given by Schaefer. The last statement he made changed her life and set her off on a Paul on the road to Damascus experience. You will be amazed by Sandy's story of how she found her way to the Catholic Church. Once again, my privilege to introduce Sandy Arso. I am delighted to be here this morning. I start my story probably a little farther back than most people do. I am a a thrasher. My father was a thrasher. My mother was a fair. And uh, both of those families were in this country prior to the Revolutionary War. The thrashers are English and the, and the fairs are Scotch-Irish. Both of those families filtered down through the Piedmont area. And those of you who are into uh, genealogy are familiar with that route. On the way, the thrashers stopped off in Georgia for a while and, and established a little community called Thrasherville that uh, then began to grow and expand, and as it did, as it got larger, they renamed it Atlanta. I have, uh, (laughs) I actually have Thrasher relatives who, despite the fact that that they've been in Louisiana forever, would only bank with an Atlanta bank as frequently, as I mean, as, as recently as 10 years ago. They didn't trust anybody except an Atlanta banker. Um, they've now been in, both sides of my family have now been in, in North Louisiana for seven generations. The most important point is that they were all Baptists. <laughs> and they still are. <laughs> I was born in Natchitoches. My father eventually accepted a job in Shreveport, which, which is where I spent most of my growing up years. My mother took my uh, sisters and me to Sunday school and church every Sunday morning training in Union Church every Sunday night and to prayer meeting, usually on Wednesday nights. My father was not a churchgoer, despite the fact that he had been reared by churchgoing parents. In fact, both of my grandparents donated the land on which the Baptist churches were built in their respective communities. I received a wonderful foundation in the Baptist church, for which I am enormously grateful, a foundation in my faith, and in the Bible, which is, and I I tell people, verses still come to my mind. All of those verses we memorized when we were kids. And and I'm very grateful for that. But when I was 15, I decided that church was boring, and I didn't want to do that anymore. And I absolutely regret having to say that in front of my 15-year-old daughter. (laughs) I had, unlike my daughter... I had a mother who allowed me to do that, who allowed me to stop going to church. When I was 21, I married a man who was a senior at Louisiana Tech. We um, lived there until he finished his senior year, and we moved to Dallas. 
and Dallas in 1969. And usually I pause here so you can do the math so you can figure out how old I am. Dallas in 1969 was a fabulous place. The, the economy was strong. There were uh, lots of wonderful jobs. Luxury homes and apartments and office buildings and highways were being built literally so rapidly that you couldn't, you couldn't identify the landscape from one year to the next. I had a great job. My husband and I both had great jobs. We remodeled a, a old red brick split level house near White Rock Lake. We had no debt, no children, lots of money, and spent it freely. We traveled a lot. We ate in wonderful restaurants, went to the theater and movies and partied with friends and, and spent a lot of time acquiring material possessions. I worked during the week. We both did. We were very responsible. During the weekends, as I say in my book, my confused alter ego frequently found expression as a weekend hippie. (laughs) Uh, There was a place in Dallas called uh, Turtle Creek. I know it's a little hard to believe looking at me now, (laughs) but I spent a lot of my time in indecently short cutoffs (laughs) and a halter top and a French leather vest down at Lee Park with hair down to my waist doing the counterculture thing, protesting a lot of things, you know, just whatever we felt like needed to be protested at the moment. (laughs) I was a voracious reader. I always have been drawn mostly to nonfiction because I have such a passion for the truth. My reading did, however, extend to religions, although I never would have regarded it as a search for God. I was not interested in God. I had left that behind. That was part of my childhood, and I was and that life was great. By this time, I had concluded that Christianity was simply a crutch for people who were too weak to deal with the hand that life had dealt them. I didn't see anything wrong with that. I thought everybody who needed a crutch should have one. I just didn't happen to need one because everything in my life was great. If I had been asked at that point to to label my position on God, I would have called myself agnostic. I thought that was uh, the perfect word to reflect the blasé attitude of someone who was as sophisticated as I felt now that I was living the good life in the big city. And then something happened. I told the Magnificat board, I have given this testimony a thousand times. I've tried it in front of the mirror by myself, and I still cry. So y'all are just going to have to get through this with me. (laughs) And this has been 30 years ago. In fact, it'll be uh, 30 years next month. So I just apologize. The point I like to stress here, though, is that the something that happened, a lot of people think, oh, good, here comes the story about God knocking her off her high horse, you know, about God bringing her down so he could deal with her, because that's what a lot of people think needs to happen in order for us to come to God. And I am a living testimony that that simply is not true. The something that happened for me was that on March 22, 1977, I read an interview in the Dallas Morning News with a man named Francis Schaefer. And if anybody's ever heard of Francis Schaefer, 
I beg you to leap to your feet at this moment. <laughs> there, yeah, that's usually the response I get. Francis Schaeffer has been compared by some Protestants to C.S. Lewis. He is, he is a man with an absolutely phenomenal mind. According to the article, Dr. Schaefer was a former Presbyterian minister. He had left the church and gone to Switzerland to, to establish a retreat called Labrie. And this, he, he stated the purpose of that retreat as a place to um, help young people who were looking for answers. He did not say look for God. He said look for answers. And I assumed that he was a counterculture guy, you know, thumbing his nose at the establishment. And, of course, I liked that. I found that very intriguing, so I went to buy the book. The name of his book, and this was, I don't know, his 30th book or something. He had written a lot. The name of this book was How Should We Then Live the Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. I went into the bookstore, and the young man who assisted me, the clerk there, asked me if I had ever heard Dr. Schaefer speak. And I told him no. He said, this guy is cool. You really need to go hear him. And I said, okay. So Schaefer was coming to a Southern Methodist University to speak, so I went and bought tickets. The lectures were scheduled to take place over a three-day period, three nights, three lectures, and um, he was speaking at Moody Coliseum on the SMU campus there in Dallas. The presentation for the nights was, well, first of all, I was um, intrigued by his um, physical appearance I knew his reputation intellectually, and I was a little surprised to see he was balding on top. He had long white hair, a long white goatee, and he was uh, wearing a white shirt, black knickers, you know, pants that ended your knee, and white stockings and black buckle shoes. And, you know, I thought, my first thought was he looked a little more like Santa Claus (laughs) than one of the great minds of our time. He, he, he also spoke extemporaneously. He was on a bare stage. There was nothing on the stage with him except a little slim, slender stand that held a microphone. The audience, uh, it became apparent to me, the place was packed. And, and Moody Coliseum is it's similar to Pete Maravich here. You know, it's where they play their basketball games. The audience uh, included a large number of theology and philosophy majors from there at LSU who delighted, you could tell they had stayed up the night before, formulating their questions. You know, these kids all knew Schaefer, and, um, and, and I'm sure they, they probably gathered in groups and thought, you know, we can come up with a question that'll stump him. And, and delighted to show off their newly acquired brilliance in front of this large, captive audience. And it was, it was just an amazing thing to watch. Uh, I compare him, I, when, the analogy I use in the book is that Dr. Schaefer, far from being challenged, <laughs> fielded the questions like a, like a softball coach. You know, you've seen softball coaches, they'll throw the balls up and just knock them out to their young outfielders. And that's, that's what I thought of when I watched Dr. Schaefer ex- have his exchanges with those young people. His major premise in his presentation was that a return to Jesus Christ and Christian teaching is the only hope for the survival of our civil, of Western civilization. I have actually been misquoted a couple of times about this, and people say that, that it's the only hope to halt the moral decline. He did not say moral decline. He said survival of Western civilization, because he talked a great deal about the decline of art and a, and a number of other areas, not just moral. He made it clear 
of course, during these presentations that he believed that Jesus Christ was the was and is the only Son of God. And I, of course, had a problem with that, but but I was willing to overlook that because his pre- because his presentation was so was so brilliant. And um, I, and I also understood that what he was saying was good. I mean, he was talking about the uh, about how Christian teachings control people. You know, they bring order to our society and a number of other things like that. And I absolutely agreed with him. I just didn't happen to need that because I had a strong moral code and I obeyed the law of the land. And I just wasn't one of those people he was talking about who needed uh, that influence of Christianity. He was... um, the, the th- all three lectures were wonderful. I enjoyed all of them. At the end of the third lecture, on the last day, he did the first thing that could have been considered religious as opposed to purely intellectual. He said, if you don't mind, I'd like to close with a word of prayer. And so we all stood, and Dr. Schaefer said a closing prayer, none of which I remember. And then he turned to walk to the edge of the stage to leave, and everybody in Moody Coliseum turned to go toward the aisles to leave. Um, as I was standing, waiting my turn to walk out, I happened to look back toward the stage, and I saw him stop. He stopped at the edge of the stage, and he turned around and he came back to the microphone. And he said... Please understand that it is not vital that you believe this simply because it is necessary for the survival of our civilization, but because it's the truth. And I almost fell. My knees buckled and I gasped and I almost fell. And I instantly and mysteriously knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the truth. Dr. Schaefer, having spoken that one sentence, then turned again and left the stage. And I looked around. I looked around the Colosseum, assuming that everybody else was as flabbergasted as I, and everybody was just kind of like, oh, okay, and, you know, turned to walk back toward the aisles. Well, of course, most of these people in this audience were Christians already. And I, I was just stunned that nobody else was reacting to this as strongly as I was. I turned and went to the aisle and obviously left there. I don't remember leaving. I remember that I got to the car. The plan had been to go to dinner. And I completely forgot about that. I don't remember the trip home. I just remember arriving at home. And I remember thinking that I had a Bible in the house somewhere. (laughs) I knew I had a Bible in that house. Someone had given me one 10 years before. And so I went and searched for it. I had a library. I went and searched until I found that Bible. I took it out and opened it. It was the King James Version, of course. That's what all good little Baptist girls get, is the King James Version. (laughs) I opened the Bible. It was still stuck together along the gilded edges of the pages. I opened it, and I started it 
Genesis 1-1. And I read through until it got to the point, and those of you, of you who are in the Bible study at Mercy now will know how timely this is for us. I read through until I got to the place in Exodus where Moses is trying to convince God that he is totally not the right guy to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And finally, Moses says, uh, who, who am I going to say sent me? And God said, I am. Tell them I am sent you. And I had to put it down. It was the most amazing thing I had ever read in my life. And I'm, I keep going back to my Baptist roots. I had probably read that a hundred times, that passage. But now it was with new eyes, and all I could think of was what kind of being refers to itself as I am. I continued to read, um, and eventually, of course, read through the entire Bible with new eyes, with eyes that had been opened by the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit sent Dr. Francis Schaeffer back to the microphone with a personal message for me. I do not believe that happened to me because I was because I'm special. I believe that it happened to me because there were two very strong prayer warriors who were praying for me. And I believe that those prayers are why I am here today. Um, only God knew those people didn't badger me. They prayed for me. And only God knew what words from which mouth would have such an impact on me. I think that's especially important to remember when we're talking, when we're thinking about our family members. You know, some of us are so desperate for our family members who who are not believers. And we sometimes want to argue them into the kingdom. <laughs> and I don't know if any of y'all know of an instance when, when that has been successful. I personally do not. <laughs> I did not go to church. I studied at home on my own, read wonderful Christian authors, got study guides, watched TV programs and all kinds of things like that, and, and pretty much uh, got myself back up to speed on my own. An interesting thing happened as I read through the Bible. Um, I, I was I was not uh, shy to use colorful language in my other life. I didn't use the very worst words, but the ones that are commonly acceptable in our society I would use in a minute. What happened to me as I began to read the Bible for lengthy periods of time every day is those words just didn't come out of me anymore. I didn't try to stop cursing. I didn't see anything wrong with cursing. I had not reached that point in my development yet. Those words just didn't come anymore. They just weren't there. And I, and I found that that began to happen in other areas of my life as well, that the changes came really with no effort on my part. We eventually moved back to Shreveport, which I'm not sure I mentioned. That's where I'm from. That's where I've spent most of my growing up years. And uh, after visiting around with a few, a few churches, I ended up back at First Baptist. Now, First Baptist in Shreveport is not a typical Baptist church. I don't. Some of you may have never even been to a Baptist church, but I think most people think of Baptist and they think of a preacher up there, pound in the pulpit and yelling. And um, First Baptist in Shreveport 
was, uh, well, first of all, the minister there was Dr. William Hull, and I was told that at one time he had been offered the head of the Divinity School at Harvard. He was a most extraordinary man with a brilliant mind, a very sophisticated man. He um, actually, when he left for Baptist, he wanted to be provost at Samford in Birmingham, was there for a while, and then uh, is now semi-retired. I understand he's still there and, and teaches occasionally. I loved him. He was exactly what I was looking for. I taught an adult Sunday school class on Sunday mornings. And then on Sunday nights, I went to all different denominations. I visited all the Protestant denominations and non-denominational churches as well. Not the Catholic Church. I mean, I would occasionally go to a wedding at a Catholic church or whatever. But, you know, I'm not, I was never one of, I was never a Catholic hater. You know, I just didn't, um, I just didn't feel, feel particularly drawn there. I remember one night, uh, y'all, I mean, I saw some of the most amazing things in some of these churches, but I know one night I was in a Pentecostal church, and have y'all ever seen a pew runner? Anybody know what a pew runner? You've seen pew runners? It's amazing. I saw this with my own eyes. I'm sitting there in church, and what happens is somebody, a man, I've, I've never seen anything but a man do this, but... A man will get filled with the Spirit. They say filled with the Spirit, and he will run and in street shoes jump on the back of the back pew and run the backs of the pews all the way to the front of the church. It was truly one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. (laughs) I came out of all this experience with a love and a respect and an appreciation for all people in all denominations who are seeking God wherever they're seeking Him. <laughs> and I thank God that, that I was able to do that. Um, my marriage eventually ended in the D word. I came to Baton Rouge, went to school at LSU for a while, and then went back to Ruston to Louisiana Tech. I was working on finishing my degree. Went back to Louisiana Tech when I was offered a full scholarship there. One weekend while I was a student at Tech, my best friend called. She and her husband were going to New Orleans for a music conference. And she just wanted to know if I wanted to go with them. And I did. I went down there. It was there that she introduced me to a man named Lynn Orso, who was exe- a founder and executive director of the Louisiana Music Commission. He was there uh, putting on the governor's music conference at the Weston Hotel in New Orleans. He was sick that weekend, and we really we just met. We really didn't spend any time together. But and in fact, it was a while before um, before we really got to know each other very well. In fact, it was probably about two years before we started dating. Although I didn't find this out for some time, he was also a rock and roll guitar player. And the Lord knew what he was doing about that, too, because I had never known a musician. You know, my friends were like CPAs and lawyers, and the only musicians I knew, I mean, they were just people you hired for a party, and then I didn't know where they went after that, you know. I didn't even know if they had lives. But uh. <laughs> Some of you in this room are old enough to know, and if you're from Baton Rouge, John Fred and the Playboys. My husband played guitar with John Fred from the time they were at Catholic High together many, many years ago, um, until Fred died just a couple of years ago. And, and my husband, by the way, would have been here. He was in New Orleans until late last night, got home, and his mother, who was very ill, was worse. And uh, she lives right behind us, fortunately, and he, was, um, he felt obligated to stay there with her. Just before we left, he came home with a little better report on her. I'm delighted, but, but he's where he needs to be. He's with his mama. 
Lynn still plays. He plays with the Louisiana Hayride Band. He also plays with a new group called Route 61. They do Roots music. And he plays with Maggie Lewis and the Thunderbolts. And the Maggie in Maggie Lewis and the Thunderbolts is my best friend Margaret, about whom I write in the book. I graduated from college. I worked as a newspaper reporter and an editorial writer. I'd worked for a variety of newspapers, but after I graduated, I worked for the Times and Report, which is comparable to the advocate here in, in Baton Rouge. Writing editorials was my very favorite thing. I was telling somebody earlier one of the great moments of my life was when I walked into the editor's office, and he said, my first day, and he said, so you want to write editorials? And I said, yes. And I expected an assignment. Instead, he said, then apparently you have something you want to say. Go say it. And, I mean, that was heaven. You know, just a blank slate. I could just go say anything I wanted to. Lynn and I eventually um, began dating. Our relationship got more serious. I came down and went to work uh, for Buddy Romer. I had worked for a political handler in Shreveport after I left the newspaper. And one of the things we did was manage Buddy Romer's campaign in North Louisiana. So I came down and went to work as executive director of the Governor's Partnership for a Drug-Free Louisiana under Buddy and then uh, eventually did that under Edwin Edwards for a while as well. It was primarily a media job where I published a statewide newsletter. Lynn actually announced his intention to marry me at a fraternity party at LSU. (laughs) His band was playing for a frat party there, and two of my nieces happened to be at that party. And and we started to leave, and they told him it was nice to meet him, and he turned around and he said, someday we'll get married. And I went, what? I was stunned to hear that. As it turns out, he was right. Someday we did. I had not wanted children early in my first marriage. But then I changed my mind. I was a career woman, and that was my primary focus. But later in that marriage, I changed my mind. When I brought up having children, my husband had simply said no. He was not open to discussing that at all. Uh, By this time, when Lynn and I were dating, I was 43, and he was 48. He had never been married before. And when we discussed marriage seriously, he told me that he might want children. And, I, and my response was, then you need to marry a 25-year-old girl because it is probably not going to happen here. Um, he chose me anyway. We married, and when I was 44 and he was 49, much to our surprise and delight, we found out I was pregnant for the first time. I thank God every day that he knew what he was doing and gave us that child. I was not, it was not going to change my life, though. You know, I was a thoroughly modern woman. We live right behind the governor's mansion. My office was at the state capitol. So I thought, this is just too perfect. I was interviewing nannies, and I thought, you know, I'll have a nanny come take care of my baby. And I mean, I never missed a beat when I was pregnant. I worked Friday. We went out Friday night. Saturday night, we went out again. Sunday, we took some of Lynn's prospects to dinner. Sunday night, around midnight, I went into labor, and my baby was born at noon on Monday. I mean, I never missed a minute of work and never had a minute. In fact, I had spent my fourth month in pregnancy, of pregnancy in the Soviet Union. When I found out I was pregnant, when my, daughter, when my doctor confirmed that I was pregnant, my first question to him was, can I go to the Soviet Union? And he looked at me, <laughs> stunned, and he said, well... <laughs> I guess you can. He said, actually, if, you, if you've got to go, the fourth month is the perfect time. So I did that. Nothing about my life changed until I took one look at that baby. <laughs> she came out, and I looked at her, 
And one more time in my life, my brain totally reordered itself. And everything, I thought about everything, changed. And I wasn't about to let anybody touch my baby (laughs) unless they were blood relatives. And so I still can't believe my mother did this. That's back when American had service between Shreveport and Baton Rouge. My mother would fly to Baton Rouge from Shreveport every Monday morning, keep my baby all week, and fly home on Friday. And she did this for months, primarily because I had the best job in the world. And my paycheck was, was significant. And mother didn't want me to make a decision about leaving that job when my hormones were still raging. You know, she wanted me to be sure I knew what I was doing. So she did that until I clearly remember what happened is I, I came home from work one day. There was a function we had to attend that night. We came, Lynn and I came home from work. We changed clothes. I spent a few minutes with Caroline. Mother was there keeping her and I. And then I had to leave because we had to go to this party. And then when I got home, Caroline was asleep. And I still remember that. That was 15 years ago. And to this day, that is still the worst day of my life. And it was at that point that I realized that I had, that I had to do something different. And so I moved my office home. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is a good idea. I'll move my office home. You know, I'm right here. I'm right here by everybody and everything I need to interact with, and so I moved my office home. And y'all, I mean, there, I know there are women in this world who can do it all. I am not one of those women. I found that out the hard way. It almost killed me being at home alone with my daughter and trying to be a full-time mother and then trying to do a full-time job as well. And so I finally, after a year of doing that, turned in my resignation and stayed at home to be a full-time mom. The birth of my daughter has turned out, and Caroline, you can leave the room or like put a napkin over your head or something if, if you get tired of being discussed. The birth of my daughter has turned out to be a miracle beyond the obvious reasons. Um, my own upbringing was difficult. I was reared by wonderful people who were very young and ill-prepared to parent. My mother, I now realize, was clinically depressed and probably should have been on medication most of my life. My father, who is the most Christ-like person I have ever known in my life, is also very self-contained. He just doesn't need anybody. He's an amazing man, and that's, that's a, a quality about him that I admire and have a great deal of respect for. However, it can be a little difficult to understand for a child who needs affection and attention. So the mental and emotional damage to me, um, well, I mean, let's let's face it, none of us get through it unscathed, you know. And not only that, I maintain that, I mean, have you ever heard of a writer who had a healthy upbringing, you know? (laughs) It's just part of the deal. But one of the greatest surprises to me about rearing my daughter has been that through doing things properly for her, I have healed from things being done improperly for me. And it's just been amazing her whole life. And even now, little things, like when I drop her off at school in the morning at the academy where she's a freshman and make the sign of the cross on her forehead and pray for her and 
and then smile at her and tell her to have a nice day, you know, and send her off with a smile on my face, helping her be in as good a mood as she can be, having to go to school. When I pull away, I feel myself heal even more. It's a, it's a gradual process, but it has been a most miraculous thing. The Lord truly knew what he was doing when he gave us that child. Caroline was just a few months old when I became concerned that Lynn and I were not of the same denomination. Uh, we had discussed that before, but it you know, wasn't really a problem. I mean, I knew he was Catholic, he knew I was Baptist. He was not active in the church before we married, and of course I had not been since I moved here. But my husband is an Orso, and those of you who are from Baton Rouge know that they are devout Catholics. After he and I married, after Caroline was born even, um, there were just so many stories about about his uncles attending daily mass, and you know the bank, Hancock Bank, which was American Bank back then, is built where it is because Uncle Clifford was president of the bank then, and he wanted to be able to park in the parking lot, go across the street to the cathedral, and go to mass, and then go back, you know, right up to his office. And I know when Uncle Clifford died, I've never seen that many priests in one place in my life. It's like, it's like the skies had opened and angels had fallen from heaven. Of course, they were all dressed in white. And these little things happening um, made it clear to me what the Catholic Church meant to this family. These were not casual Catholics. And my daughter's an Orso, and I wanted her to be a part of that tradition, but I wanted us to all be the same thing, so the logical thing to do was for me to become Catholic. It was purely an intellectual decision. I had a goal. The goal was to become Catholic so we could all be the same thing. And so I had a friend who had gone through RCIA at St. Aloysius, and she recommended that I go there. I, uh, so this North Louisiana Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher showed up at the convent, knocked on the door. Sister Marina met with me, and, uh, and I signed up for RCIA. As it turns out, they were just starting a new session of RCIA. And uh, so my timing was perfect, or God's timing was perfect. I went through, it, it, Sister Marina and Sister Rosary turned out, I will add to be two of the most influential women in my life. I went through RCIA. Before I started, I had three problems. I think probably the three most non-Catholics have. The infallibility of the Pope, the actual presence in the Eucharist, and the, and the position of the Blessed Mother, you know, or the worship of the Blessed Mother, as so many would say. Um, the year-long process of RCIA turned out to be one of the most moving spiritual experiences of my life. And I fell in love with the Catholic Church. And that love has only grown grown stronger since my first communion in 1995. And I'm sure none of you will be surprised. I mean, sometimes I think God is up there just laughing at the way things work out for me. I'm sure none of you will be surprised to hear that the Pope, the Blessed Mother, and the actual presence of the Eucharist are now my two fav- my three favorite things about the Catholic Church. Isn't it interesting how that happens? <laughs> we continued to attend Mass at St. Aloysius. Caroline was um, in school there. I missed Sunday school terribly. I missed Bible study, you know, which is what Sunday school in the Baptist Church is. You have 45 minutes of concentrated Bible study. So I started... Um, Praying for Bible study, I found one, a non-denominational study here that a lot of you probably are familiar with. There are about 500 women in it. I went, attended that study for five years until we started studying the book of Romans, and it got a little 
hard for me as a Catholic. You know, I was just kind of struggling with their approach, and so I left that. I prayed for another study. I had been praying for about a year, and, you know, one night just really said, God, you know, you know how important this is to me. I need a Bible study. And the next morning, turned on the TV. A friend of mine had been telling me about one, but it it didn't seem like it was something where I would necessarily be welcome. I wasn't sure. She said it was taught by a woman named Judy. The next day I turn on the TV, and there are these three people there. I didn't know them at the time, but I now know that it was Father Miles, Warren Dazio, and Judy Zeldin. And I heard someone say Judy, and I thought, oh, that's a coincidence. You know, my friend had... And started watching, and as it turns out, it was Judy Zeldin. They were talking about the Bible study, <laughs> answered all my questions to my satisfaction, and, and so I was, you know, delighted. The next day, I think God probably knows that sometimes I can be a little thick. The next day, I go into Mass at the cathedral. I'm praying. This woman walks down, walks in and sits in front of me. And it's Judy Zeldin, a woman I had never seen before until the day before when I saw her on TV. So Judy answered all my questions about the Bible study, told me that I would be welcome. And that really is what led me into meeting Truly, some of the most amazing women of God I have ever met. And those are the women that that led me into Magnificat as well. Through all of this, even though I wasn't working, I was still writing. Um, I'm a writer. That's what I do. That's how I process things. And I also, a lot of answered prayer was happening. There were just a lot of things happening in my life in terms of my relationship with God, that I didn't want to forget about. And I have a terrible memory. I mean, I just, I can go back and look in a journal five years later. I mean, I've done this with my address book. I've had the same address book for 20 years. I'll go through and look at it, and I'll go, who is that? You know, I won't even recognize certain names in there. So I know, I knew in order to make sure I didn't forget stuff that I needed to write about it. So so I did. I was writing a bunch of stuff. I also wanted, I wanted my daughter to know about these things, and she was too young at one point to be interested. And then she got old enough to understand, and then she was too old to be interested. <laughs> you know, I mean, she was a teenager. She's not, how many teenagers do we know who want to sit around and listen to their mom tell stories? So I began to write um, a lot of these things. You know, the first one I will say is one of the first chapters in my book, and that is, we were Caroline and I were on our way to Shreveport. We we got on the interstate going over the bridge, and I, and I wasn't quite halfway across the bridge. And I'm embarrassed to admit that I did not usually pray for safety on a trip, but I was not halfway across the bridge when I suddenly knew that I was supposed to pray for safety. So I reached in the back seat. Caroline and I held hands. We prayed. I looked at the clock. It was exactly 12:30. And 15 minutes later, we narrowly avoided a serious automobile accident in the estate that involved an 18-wheeler that ended up jumping the guardrail on the side. I wrote about a lot of these things. At some point, a, a friend of mine said, Sandy, you need to write a book. And my reaction was, what? But then I thought about it. I continued to think about it. And the, and the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. And so I did. And this is my book, for those of you who who do not know about it. It's called Rescued by Prayer. It's 24 true stories of answered prayer, most of which happened to me, some of which happened to my friend Lourdes. 
my friend Michelle. There's a chapter in here about her as well. The, the reaction to the book has truly been one of the most overwhelming things that's ever happened to me. I mean, I'm a writer. I knew it was good, you know, and I, and I thought some people would like it. But it's been absolutely amazing, and it's been so much fun to just watch God open doors for me. You know, I can look back and I realize the book was published at exactly the right time. People started calling me and asking me to do book signings and, you know, speaking engagements and It's just all fallen in place the way we all know that it always does when it's God doing it and not us. And I'm so grateful for that. I will mention, by the way, that I'm doing a book signing Saturday from 5 until 8 at Barnes & Noble if y'all have any friends who would like to come out and take a look at the book. I am not a salesman and I'm not a promoter. I don't like that. If my family's survival depended on me selling anything, we would starve to death. And it truly has been wonderful to watch God do this for me. Um, Rescue by Prayer actually allowed me to address two of my passions. One is prayer, and the other is a passion for lost souls. And and I, the way that happened to me is the most amazing thing. You know, most writers tend to be solitary people, not necessarily extremely social, and I'm, I'm typical in that way. I am truly comfortable at home, by myself, at the keyboard, you know, right, making up things in my head and <laughs> spilling all of this stuff onto paper. And I, I tended to be sort of a live and let live kind of person. I dropped my daughter at school one day at St. Aloysius. I was on my way home on Perkins Road. I stopped at the light at Perkins and Acadian. And a truck pulled up and stopped next to me. I looked over at the truck. It was, uh, there was nothing unusual about it. It wasn't really clean or really dirty or really old or really new or anything. There was a man driving the truck who, there was nothing unusual about him. Just an average guy, middle age. He never looked at me. He was looking at the light, waiting for it to change. But at that moment, I felt God drop something inside of me. And it was compassion for lost souls. And I heard God say in my spirit, not in my ear, my people perish for lack of knowledge. No one enjoys these activities more than I. Bible study, mass, coming to these magnificent breakfasts, Regnum Christi events as often as I can. But if all I do is accumulate knowledge, you know, and just circulate with with people who think the same way I think and who don't need me to lead them in terms of their spiritual development, then I am only doing half the job. Jesus and his mother are passionately concerned about lost souls. And the message from the Blessed Mother, she says, especially little children, pray for those who have not yet come to know the love of God and do not seek God the Savior. You little children be my extended hands and by your example draw them closer to my heart and the heart of my son. And who can say no to that? I think beyond prayer and example, you know, living the most Christ-like life we possibly can, understanding always that we'll never be perfect. Beyond that, how to approach lost souls can be a real challenge. 
And I think when most people hear the word evangelize, they immediately think of John the Baptist, you know, wild and eating locusts and running around preaching to people. Or they think in terms of us today, you know, they think that means when you're in a Mardi Gras party, a Mardi Gras ball, you have to run up to people and grab them and scream, Jesus saves in their face. <laughs> you know, there, there are more subtle ways. And I just looked over and saw this precious child over here. <laughs> who has found a more subtle way. Um, what she does is she keeps my book. And now, in all fairness, I will tell you, there are other books you can do this with my, as well, not just mine. In fact, one of my favorites is Dinner with a Perfect Stranger. If y'all haven't read that, you need to read it. But when she finds somebody in a bad place, she doesn't preach to them. She just hands them a copy of my book and says, you might need to read this. You know, you might enjoy this. Judy Zeldin described my book as non-threatening. And when she first said that, I just thought, okay. But the more I thought about that, the more I realized what she's talking about. I mean, it's just not preachy. It's just some stories, you know, about some things that God has done. And you may have a favorite book like that that you would like to to use in in that way. You know, just giving it to friends, a book of poetry that you particularly like, something that points toward God. In my home, for example, I mean, you can't. You come in my house, and there is no question we are Christians. <laughs> you know, there are crosses, there are rosaries, there's stuff everywhere. So when somebody comes in my home, I don't have to preach. I don't have to try to convert them and, you know, explain to them what my position is on God. I've been able to make it obvious. When I look back over my life, I can see that God has constantly tried to help me and bless me. Despite some foolish decisions on my part, he has never given up on me. Some people talk about how they've messed up plan A and had to go to plan B in their lives. And I tell people I'm pretty sure I'm on plan W. (laughs) A dear friend of mine once said to me, I believe in God, but I don't love him the way you do. And I have probably thought about that one statement. more than anything anybody's ever said to me in my life. Luke 7.47 in in the New Living Translation says, I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Maybe that's my answer. He not only hung on a cross for me, he forgave me so much. And he has walked down more difficult paths with me than I could ever tell you about here today. God is not an abstract concept to me. He is not some uninvolved creator who like set this train in motion, you know, and jammed it into full throttle and then jumped out of the train and went off and left me (laughs) to figure out what I'm supposed to do next. He is instead... A loving, caring father who is active in my life every day, sometimes in small ways and sometimes in big ways. And I do truly love him with all my heart. Thank you. Well, we certainly hope you have enjoyed Sandy Arso. And for more information or a copy of today's broadcast, please write us at Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. 
Once again, Magnificat proclaims P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, zip code 92859. And for some of you, it might be easier to call. So feel free to call us at 800-500-4556. If you would like to have more information about the Magnificat ministry, including a location of a Magnificat chapter in your area, you can call 504-828-MARY. That's 504-828-MARY. Or visit the Magnificat website at www.magnificat-ministry.org. On behalf of Magnificat Proclaims, this is Donna Ross inviting you to join us next time as we present more personal testimonies from our inspirational Catholic speakers. Remember, Magnificat proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you in his peace.
so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.